Welcome to Slay Church. We are so glad that you're tuning in today and pray that wherever you are, this message will bless you. If this impacts you in any way, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. All right. All right. How you doing, Slate Church? You good? You good? You here? Awesome. Awesome. I love it. You know, before service, I was thinking um, about our values a little bit. We have values as a church, and, and we have these values to help set culture and set a trajectory and all these things. And one of our values I was reminded of was that we are contributors, not consumers. And we talk about this value often in terms of teams and in terms of contributing and bringing what we have to bring and what we have to offer and that we're gifted and all of these different things to contribute and not just consume. But you know, this is actually a value for services as well. This is a value for Sundays as well, that we're not just here to consume and to take in whatever the person on stage is talking about, but we're actually here to contribute and to be part of this and to to maybe respond or even just be present in the room and engaged in what, um, what is being spoken. And the reason why we do this is so that we actually get a shared experience as a group of people. We get to experience God together. And, and you know, experience is actually where real change takes place. Sometimes we can look at and we're like, oh, it's just an experience. I want knowledge. It's just an experience. I want depth. I want this. I want that. It's just hype. But research shows that experience is what creates change. Not just knowing something, not just understanding something, but actually experiencing something is where we change for the long run. So that's why we contribute. That's why we don't just, if we just consume and get, uh, get all of this knowledge and just become obese Christians, it doesn't actually do anything for the kingdom of God. But if we actually contribute, we get the shared experience, we experience change in our lives. So I just want to encourage you that, with that this morning, that we are contributors, not consumers. Sound good? Awesome. Well, let's dive in. I'm going to be speaking out of Romans chapter 6. And Romans is written by a a guy named Paul. And he's writing it um, to a group of people who at this time uh, needed some encouragement in their faith. They needed to understand a little bit some of the basics of the message of the gospel and what Jesus did. And in Romans 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. And if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me. It says this, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we get to be here in your house today, Lord. And I just pray you would speak through me uh, the message that you have given me with clarity, God. I just pray that I wouldn't get in the way, but that your words would ring true in this place. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, listen, when, when you were a kid, if you can think back to that time in your life, I wonder, did you ever do errands with your parents? Did you get brought along? You know, some of us maybe a little reluctantly were like, do we have to go there and do this? I know that's how I was as a kid going to Ikea. I was like, no, this is the worst. I never was in the play place. Now I'm just looking at couches. And, and now I'm like, Ikea, this is the best. It changes, okay? It changes over. But maybe you love to go on errands and love to love to 
to do that. I know as a kid, I went on a lot of errands. Luke and I are brother and sister, and uh, we're not too far apart in age. So we spent a lot of time going on errands with my dad. He's right there. And uh, we spent a lot of Saturday mornings going to the dump and going to the grocery store and doing all the things. And I've learned now as a mom probably why this is, because it's great. If you have the opportunity to send the, all the kids out with dad and you get to be at home, it's like the greatest gift in the unit. You're like, it's quiet. I can sit down. No one's jumping on me. It's like a gift. So I know now why I did so many errands as a kid. Uh, I, I see the back end of it at this point. But we did a lot of, of running around, a lot of errands. And I remember this one time we were out at a convenience store. And this wasn't one that was like attached to a gas station that made sense. It was one in like a plaza that you're like, how does this stay afloat? Do people really need like that many bags of small Lay's chips and, and, and chocolate bars? And those? like, how does this actually work? But anyways, this is where we found ourselves. And my dad was at the cash register. He was, um, he was wi talking with the employee and, and purchasing whatever it was he was getting. And Luke and I were with him. And we were at that age where we were eye level with the counter, okay? We could see what was sitting on the counter. And I'll never forget... There was this little box, this little clear box with a whole bunch of change in it, as you sometimes see on counters in convenience stores. And there was this little box with change in it. And then beside it, there was this box filled with chocolate bars. And I was like, you get to donate? for a chocolate bar. That is what this situation is. And basically, when you donate, you can either be really generous or you can be really stingy. Am I right? So in my, you know, young child mind, I was like, I'm about to get a chocolate bar for like one penny. That is what is about to happen here. I'm not giving five dollars. I'm giving like a penny and I get a free chocolate bar. So I let Luke in on what was happening. And I was like, do you see, let's get our money out. We'll get a chocolate bar. My dad's just chatting away and, 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 and going through purchasing what he was purchasing. And so we put like literally two pennies into this jar of change and we both grabbed a chocolate bar. We had it open. We were headed out the door before my dad could even notice what was happening here. And he's like, what? Where did you get this chocolate bar from? What are you doing? What, what's going on? We're like, we put money in the thing. We put our pennies in the thing and we got our chocolate bar. Little did we know that right behind the jar of change was a basket full of poppies, okay? This, the change was directed to the poppies. It was not applying to the chocolate bars. And my dad was not happy at that moment that he had to go back in and buy these chocolate bars. Needless to say, we did not get to eat the chocolate bars. I think that my dad probably ate the chocolate bars on the way home, which was well-deserved. I would do the same thing as a parent in this perspective now. But I I remember walking away feeling so guilty that I had stolen these chocolate bars from a store. How could I steal these chocolate bars and, and not realize that I was like, oh, I'm such a terrible person that I would take this chocolate and I'm so awful, I'm so sinful, all of these terrible things because I stole this chocolate from a store. You know, today, we are going to be talking actually about something that often isn't talked about in society and isn't really often talked about in church too much either. And we're going to be looking a little bit deeper at this idea of sin, this idea of sinfulness. But listen, if you're taking notes, you'll see that there's a redemptive part to this message because the title of my message is Saved by a Savior. Saved by a Savior. But listen, if we're going to talk about sin, we have to actually know what it is. And for many of us, sin is summed up as action or inaction. 
I sinned because I stole something. I cursed. I wasn't kind to that person. I looked at something I shouldn't have online. I got angry. And sometimes we can feel like a bad person because we've done something wrong. Because we have or have not acted in a certain way. And it causes us to live in shame and insecurity and sometimes fear that our sin is going to be recognized and seen by other people. So then we take our sin to God and we go to God and we repent. But how many of us know that sometimes we walk away from that conversation still feeling weighed down by guilt and shame and insecurity? And we're like, what is going on here? This can be a confusing place to be in. We begin to live our Christian lives in a works mentality where we think that if I just become good enough or I just don't do enough wrong, I will live free and in the clear. God will approve of me. I will be enough. And then we just go on doing that for a little while until we do something wrong again. And then for some of us, we get exhausted by this cycle. We start to get exhausted by this cycle and we start to actually hide away from God because we feel so ashamed and so insecure about what is going on. And for some of us, this actually lives in the subconscious. We might come to church for months or years praising God, lifting our hands, talking to people, saying all of the right things, but really feeling disconnected from this God that we are talking about and this God that we are worshiping. And often it's because of this underlying feeling of feeling not good enough. We know what we ought to do, but it feels too hard. It feels too big, and we can't really handle this dissonance in our lives, and eventually it catches up to us. We don't want to walk around feeling like a failure, feeling shame-filled, so we actually just become avoidant to God, and we can become exhausted by a faith that holds us to this high standard. We can begin to look at the world around us and to start seeing the grass being greener on that side where there's compromise is seen as acceptance and relativity as being one's true self and approval of anything and everything as a weird version of love. And it can be easy to fall into this trap of shallow Christianity where grace means that you get a free pass and sin means that you stole a chocolate bar from a convenience store. And now don't get me wrong, God does forgive you and you shouldn't go steal chocolate from a convenience store uh, with poppy jars of money. That's not the point. Don't do that. But there is this greater understanding of sin and grace that we need to begin to grasp if we are going to understand our need for a savior. If we're simply looking for someone to pat us on the back and say, it's okay so that we can feel better. Listen, we can find that anywhere. There are a lot of places and a lot of people that are willing to pat us on the back, send us on our way, give us some good advice, and say it's going to be fine. No big deal. You're okay. This is not the fullness of grace. That's not the fullness of grace that God is talking about. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. But in order to understand the depth of what grace means to us, we must understand the depth of our sin. And sin is something that every single one of us in this place deals with. It is something that that none of us can get away from. We all deal with it. You are not alone in your sin. And we are the ones that place this strange hierarchy on sin. Where it's like, well, at least I didn't do that. And that's not my sin. And and I'm going to compare it with this person over here. And and this person's worse off. So then maybe I'm not so bad. And this is, we're the ones that create that hierarchy. All of us have sinned. You know, 1 John 3, 4, John describes sin as lawlessness. Lawlessness. 
In Canada, we have a legal system. We have some structure to the law. We have the Supreme Court. We have federal and provincial courts. We have a structure. We have a system so that if something goes wrong, if you do something wrong, there is a consequence in place. And we have that set up for ourselves. And, you know, I was looking up some Canadian laws uh, and, and... I think as all of us would do, I found myself starting to head in a direction of, well, what are the strange Canadian laws? I mean, this is great that there's, there's this legal system in place, but what are some of the weird things that Canadians can and can't do based on our legal system? And of course, I'm going to share them with you here today. You're welcome. Uh, you know, it seems that in general, Canada has done a fairly good job setting some laws up, but some of these I think might be a little bit outdated, uh, so to speak. Um, in Victoria, so a little bit further from home, if this is your line of work, street, street performing, if that's you, uh, I wouldn't do it there. They aren't allowed to give kids balloon animals. And I don't know why. I don't know what the point of this is. It sucks for the kids of Victoria. I think it's an outrage. But they're not allowed to do that. In Toronto... There really should be, uh, there should be people arrested um, left, right, and center for this one, I would think. It is illegal to swear in a public park. You, you're not allowed to swear in a public park, so keep, keep an eye out for that. Um, if you don't pay your hotel bill in Canada, the hotel can keep your horse. Um, so if you are a horse or owner in this place, don't lose your animal to not paying your hotel bill. In Oshawa... In Oshawa, so not too far other side of Toronto, it's illegal to climb a tree, apparently. So, I mean, Brandon was born in Oshawa, and I think you have some time to serve based on, <laughs> based on that, I'm sure. Uh, in Ontario, this one is a little bit contextual to the time of year, and it is Christmas time, so it is contextual to this time of year. So if you have been setting yourself up for some like Instagram-worthy moments in your life or something like that, I I'm just going to give you the heads up. It is illegal to drive your sleigh on the highway without, not you can do it, but without at least two bells attached to your horse. All right, so you need two attached to your horse. And the last one I'll share with you here in all of Canada, it is illegal to offend a place with a bad smell. All right, so some of us are probably guilty today um, in all of Canada. And listen, although we have some leftover laws in Canada, they are a little bit funny and probably need to be taken out of the system uh, a little bit. This is not the law even that John is talking about. When he says that sin is lawlessness, he's not talking about this law. He's not even talking about the law that was given to Moses when it came to the Israelites in the Old Testament. We read about that law that was given. He's not talking about that either. He's talking about a divine law, a moral law that God set into place originally with Adam and Eve, even before Moses, that there was this moral right and wrong, good and evil. This was set in to place. And this is the law that is being talked about here. The rejection of this law is the rejection of Jesus. And anything outside of Jesus is a sin. Any choice outside of Jesus is a sin. And I love how one pastor phrased it. I think it's all encompassing and it's helpful. He said this, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, 
the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, that's usually the one that we stick with, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. You know, this actually encompasses a lot more than simply stealing a chocolate bar from a convenience store or swearing under our breath when someone cuts us off in traffic or getting angry with our spouse when they show up later than what you expected them to. This is kind of an all-encompassing idea, and I think that all of us can see ourselves falling short in this area. This is actually set up as an impossible task, and the weight of that is something that we ought to feel as Christians. Sin is choosing something other than God, whether consciously or subconsciously, whether fully or partially. You know, in Romans 5, starting in verse 12, Paul tells us where all of this came from. And he points back to Adam. You know, in Genesis, God calls his creation very good. He creates all of it and he looks back and says, this is very good. And it was. There was no sin. There was no separation from God. There was perfect order. And then humankind came along and made a choice to choose something other than God. And they chose a piece of fruit with empty promises attached to it. And I wonder how often, church, are we eating pieces of fruit with empty promises attached to it? The promise of wealth, the promise of happiness, the promise of contentment, the promise of opportunity, the promise of knowledge, the promise that that person really will love you. The promise that if you don't worry enough, something won't change. We chew on this fruit, hoping it will give us what the world tells us that it will. And then we find ourselves sitting there with emptiness, shame, and guilt. And since that point, death entered into the world. A creation that never would have experienced death, never would have experienced barrenness, all of a sudden had sin all throughout it. And you see, Adam was a representative of all humankind, of all of creation. And therefore, everyone who came after him falls into this sin. They fall into the consequences of sin. And this is how and why we actually live in a broken world. This is why we experience brokenness. And we need to understand that sinfulness is beyond the actions that we do. We are sinful beings. It's into the depth of who we are. We are broken from the moment that we are born. You know, I have, I have three kids and they're great and I love them and I have my daughter Claire and she is just seven months old. So she is still pretty fresh when it comes to thinking about her in those early moments of, of being born. And you know, if you've ever had a child, you look at them after they, they've been born and you're just like, you're so great. How is this possible? How do you have all of the parts? How do you have everything that you need? How are you so whole? How are you so big? Hello, nine pound children. And it's like, how are you in me? I don't understand. And it's like, you're, you're so great. You know, and I've ha- before having kids, I had decided that I would, if my kids were not cute, if my babies were not cute, I would accept that and I would not push that on other people to lie to me all the time, okay? Like I wasn't going to be like, aren't they so cute and hope for the best. I was just going to be realistic with myself and accept that they needed to grow into it, okay? Some kids need to grow into it and that's okay, all right? That's okay to accept. So I just came to this conclusion. But I've been told by outside sources, um, uh, you know, 
sources that I think are 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 kind of level-headed that that my kids are were cute from from the baby stage. Okay, there are some that would say that. Maybe you thought differently, but uh, enough people said that. Okay, so I'm going to accept that and say that they were cute, and I think they were. And and I mean, they were these perfect little babies, so perfect. And people would say often, oh, they're so perfect. Look at them. How are they so perfect? But even Claire, who still can't do anything for herself, really hasn't done anything wrong. Sometimes she cries too much, but we'll forgive her for that. Like, she hasn't done anything. But even her, she is sinful. She is broken. It is part of our humanity. I can already see it in my three-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, but even Claire... I thought I'd get away with her, but no, she too, she's broken. She's sinful. It's in every single one of us from the moment that we are born. That's part of our humanity. Romans 3.23 says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And yet today we often try to redeem this in our own strength. We live in a world where the topic of sin is avoided, where we, we brush over brokenness. We have a cheap version of forgiveness of, oh, it's going to be okay, no problem. But there's some dangers that we can fall into if we don't acknowledge and recognize the truth of sin in our lives. And I want to look at a few of them today. The first one is this. If we miss the truth of sin, we start to shoulder shame. We start to shoulder shame. Brene Brown often talks about shame and defines it as this. The intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Can you relate to this at all? I know I can. We are flawed. But the problem comes when we believe that this makes us incapable of love and belonging, even from God. We become ashamed of ourselves and then therefore find ourselves disconnecting. But the incredible thing about Jesus is that he takes that shame upon himself. When we don't, when we don't understand that sin separates us from God, and we don't understand the brokenness that we are born into, the brokenness of this world, we start to bear the weight of, sin, of shame instead. We fail to call it what it is, and therefore we fail to recognize that Jesus fail, frees us completely. We don't have to walk around as losers or as failures or as less than individuals, even though sin has created an impossible task for us. You know, this fall, uh, my family did something that many Canadians do in the fall. We paid money to go run around um, dead stalks of corn, uh, basically is what, is what we did. It's called a corn maze. And, uh, and we spent, you know, half an hour or so running through this corn maze, walking through. Um, I, I get a little competitive, and, and I come by it honestly. Luke does too. Um, and we, we took off, and we left the family, and we tried to scare them, and all these things. We have this fun in the corn maze. But, you know, at some point, you hit enough dead ends, and you're like, is there actually an exit to this thing? Like, is there a way out of this corn maze? And eventually, we found it was great, celebrated found this exit. But you know, I was thinking about this idea of the corn maze. And I think that sin is actually being like dropped into a corn maze with no exit. That we're just walking around and we're like, where's the exit? And there's actually no way out. 
But what shouldering shame is, is then taking it upon yourself and feeling ashamed of yourself that you can't find the exit. Even when one doesn't exist. There's no exit there, but you feel that you should be able to find it on your own and, and work it out yourself, and you feel ashamed of yourself that you can't. There's no exit. The only option is to go up. And the incredible thing that God does is he actually comes and takes us out of that impossible maze. He actually brings us out of it. And even more so, he lets us have the victory. He lets us have the celebration that we got, our, we got out of it. You know, in Romans 8, 37, it says, we are more than conquerors. We get to walk around as victors. You see, many of us have undiagnosed shame in our relationship with God. There's an underlying feeling that the things that we have done or haven't done somehow keeps us out of God's good books. And therefore, we cannot be used by him. We can't have connection with him. And we can't do enough to regain it. This is the perspective we take when we miss the truth of sin. Yes, we are sinful, but God fully takes this upon himself. He stands in the gap and we don't have to feel ashamed. He lifts us out and we actually get to be the ones victorious in this. Another danger that we run into when we miss out on the truth of sin is that we become content with compromise. When sin becomes about how we feel, we compromise our faith. When we start to base it on if we feel good doing it or feel bad doing it or how the feeling is, and if that's sin or not sin, we start to compromise. I wonder, church, does your day-to-day -day life actually mirror the beliefs that you hold? Do you live with integrity? You know, I've talked to many people who might recognize that something is technically sinful. They see it within Scripture. There's clarity around it there. But so often I hear them say, but I don't feel bad doing it. I don't, it doesn't feel bad. It doesn't feel wrong. It doesn't. So then they just grow more and more content with the compromise of it. And this is how, if we get honest with ourselves, many of us judge our sinfulness. It's based on how we feel. Those three donuts don't feel like gluttony. They might feel like heartburn in a few hours, but they don't feel like gluttony, so it's really not so bad. I just wanted the one with the sprinkles and the ones with the Oreos on top, and I wanted to take a picture to prove I ate them all. Like, that's, that's the feeling. The bitterness toward your sister doesn't feel wrong. We actually feel justified in it. Well, she didn't come to this holiday, and she wasn't there at this time, and, and I thought this was going to happen. She said this rude thing behind my back that came back around to me, and, and this and that, and I feel justified in my bitterness and anger towards her. So I can't be sinful. Having sex outside the confines of marriage, it feels fine in the moment. The worry you carry with you on a daily basis that allows you to feel more in control in your life. You know what? This actually feels good to worry a little bit because I, then I feel in control. If I wasn't thinking about it so much, do I really care about it? We justify our sin. We compromise in our lives because we have a shallow view of grace and a limited perspective on sin. God has so much more for you. God has so much more than a life of compromise. Romans 6.1, I love how Paul addresses the question that many of us ask. He says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? If this grace is so wonderful, 
I, I could just keep on sinning because God's just going to forgive me. And then I'll sin some more. It doesn't feel so bad. And God's going to forgive me. And it's all going to be fine. And it's all going to be good. And that's just the way I'm going to live my life. He says this logic makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't make any sense to burn your hand, have it heal, and then say, oh, I'm going to go burn it again. It doesn't make logical sense. He says this, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? It doesn't make any sense. Sin has actually died in our lives. How do we keep living in it? In verse 6, he says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to live a life of compromise that leads us to a place of, of shallowness and shame. There is more. Good enough doesn't mean God's best. Just living a life that feels okay and it feels good enough, that's not God's best for you. I think of the Israelites who are wandering around in the desert, and just because maybe you've gotten used to eating cornflakes every day and some sand in your sandals doesn't mean the desert is the place that God wants you to live. Just because they got used to manna and they were afraid of what lay ahead in the promised land does not mean that God wanted them to stay situated in the desert. God doesn't want to let you live in a life that's just filled of, full of sinfulness that feels maybe okay. God wants us actually to, to live an extravagant life. Don't choose what feels good now and miss out on the greatness of God. Contentment, comfortability, basic, normal, easy lives are not what we are called to. This doesn't mean that every single one of us here needs to fly across the world and, and have thousands of Instagram followers and be able to eat at whatever place we want to and shop wherever we go and have these nice little lives. For some of us, that sounds like a terrible, terrible life. But that's not what an extravagant life is. That might be what the world says an extravagant life is. But an extravagant life in God is actually a life marked with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That is an extravagant life. That is a life that is counter to the culture that we live in. But the more content we grow with compromise, the more we depend on ourselves instead of God. And this is the third danger. It's that our Savior becomes ourselves. Romans 7.21, I love this passage of Scripture because we get to see this really real, vulnerable moment with Paul. The Apostle Paul is one that we would look to and go, man, he had this great conversion experience. He's following God. He's planting churches everywhere. He's instructing the church. We look to him today. But we have this moment of vulnerability with Paul in this chapter. And he says this, he says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Isn't that true? Do you ever find that? It's like, I wanted to do what was right. I don't know why I'm here again. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? You know, for many of us, we want to do what is right. We love God with all our heart. We love his moral law. We want to seek after him. There's an eagerness to serve him. We see this at Slate Church all the time. Many of you have such an eagerness. You love God with all your heart. But the response to sin is often willpower and self-control, both things which are fleeting. 
if I just will myself to do what is right, if I just have enough self-control, if I just put enough parameters on myself, well, then I'll succeed. Then I'll be good enough. Then I'll be fine. I'll figure it out. And listen, what we're basically saying is that we can save ourselves and that we ought to. That somehow this is our responsibility just to save ourselves. Can we grow in willpower and self-control? Absolutely. Are these good things to have in your life? Sure they are. But it's something that's not completely reliable. It's really an attempt for control. You know, proper self-control is actually a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's actually the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And that's actually a release in itself. Once again, it isn't about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we do or, or can't do or can do. It's about surrender. It's a countercultural idea to say that we can't save ourselves. Independence is held at the highest regard. But if we get real with ourselves, we would recognize that we cannot be people who are independent. We can't be self-sufficient. I love in verse 25, Paul goes on to say this. He says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. He has good intentions, but we know what the road to hell is paved with. Good intentions. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. It says the answer is Jesus Christ. It's not me. I have good intentions, but that's not enough. Paul has this recognition that no amount of willpower will change his sinfulness because sin rules over his entire being. What a deep revelation that is, that sin is beyond this surface level, that sin actually is a part of who we are, and we cannot save ourselves. You see, when we don't understand the weight of sin, we fail to wait on God. We fail to see our need for a Savior. So what hope do we have? It's the same conclusion that Paul came to many, many years ago, and it's Jesus. John 3.16, a very familiar verse says this, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I love the message version of Romans 5.18. It says, here it is in a nutshell. Bring it all together. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong, Adam, and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person Jesus did it right and got us out of it. But hear this, but more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. Jesus took it one step further. He didn't just save us. He didn't just redeem us, all of which we totally do not deserve. He gave us life, and life is a gift. And would anyone agree that maybe we take it for granted a little bit, this life that we have? We see it as something that we deserve, something that we have access to simply by being born. We brand our cereals as it. We kind of take it for granted. We have such a watered-down view of who God is and what he has done. And how do I know this, that we have this watered-down view? It's because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about him. 
We don't share it with the people that we go to work with every single day. We don't talk about it with our friends and with our family. And listen, this is not a version of talking about it, of pointing a finger and saying, this is what you should do. This is who you should be. This is how you should live. It's about saying, this is what God has done for me. It's about sharing our testimony, our story, the grace of God with other people. But when we water it down to a level where we can be our own savior, where we just grow content with compromise, when we just base it on how we feel, we miss out on the power of the testimony that God has given us, the freedom from sin that God has brought to our lives. And church, I really believe we need to get a deeper revelation of this. For some of us, when we say something like invite somebody to church or invite somebody to a classic Christmas or any of these, some of us shift uncomfortably in our seats. That's too much pressure. I just don't, I don't want to bring that out. I don't want to, listen church, this is a situation of life and death. It's that simple. It says in the scripture that we read earlier, the wages of sin is death. And we like to water it down and we like to make it nice and we like to make it all of these things. But we cannot get away from what the Bible says. We cannot get away from that truth. That the wages of sin, the reward for sin, what we take in, in a life of sinfulness apart from Christ, is death. And listen, there's more room here, Slate Church. We have seats here available. We have space in the back. We can make room. We'll go to whatever venue it takes because we want to see your family and your friends and the people that you influence in your life fill these seats and get that revelation understanding that the wages of sin is death. But through Christ, we can have eternal life, eternal forgiveness. What a powerful truth. What a powerful message. We can't begin to normalize the extreme measures God went to in order to save your soul from certain death. We can't leave a minimized, self-righteous version of grace on the table. And in closing, I'll finish with this. You know, in Luke chapter 2, we hear this story of Jesus being born. It's a story that we are going to talk about a lot this Christmas season. It's really why we celebrate Christmas. It's the birth of, of Jesus coming. And in Luke chapter 2, we hear this story, and, and I'm not going to read it out to you right now. We'll hear it a lot. We hear it in the Christmas music that we play. Read it yourself. Jesus is born. And nearby, it says that there were some shepherds. And they were fully unaware what was ha of what was happening in this little cave barn nearby. They didn't hear Mary crying out in pain as she labored during the night. They didn't know the rooming situation at the inn and that there was no space for them. They were totally unaware what was happening. They were just ordinary men taking care of ordinary sheep on an ordinary night when all of a sudden an angel appears to them. Can you imagine in your workplace an ordinary day, an ordinary task, and all of a sudden, an angel comes and speaks to you. It would be a little bit crazy. It would feel a little bit crazy. But I, I love this. What is said to them? The angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is not the sign that the Jewish people expected. 
of their Messiah that was prophesied so many years ago. They did not expect him to be in a feeding trough wrapped in a nursing blanket. That was not the expectation that they had. And they were in this place where they could ask themselves, what do we do now? This isn't what we expected. Is this even true? But you know what? God often takes the most unexpected circumstances, the the most unexpected ways of doing things and does things that are extraordinary with them. The most unassuming people, shepherds, watching sheep, and uses them to go and find a Savior who was born to them, who's going to change the entire course of history. When the angels leave, the shepherds look at each other and they say, let's go see. You know, I wonder, and scripture doesn't tell us, and I don't know, this is just my own personal wondering, really. I wonder if the angels visited anyone else. Like, I just wonder if the angels went to anyone else and said, hey, a savior was born here in this barn in Bethlehem, go and see. And I wonder if anyone else just shrugged it off and said, no, I don't need a savior I don't need a baby. I don't need to go and see what is going on. I love that these shepherds said, we need to go see what is happening. We need to see what these angels are talking about in the sky. They heard word of a savior and they sought him out. And I wonder, church, are we willing to seek out a savior today? Are we willing to recognize our need for a savior, the depth of our need, and go and seek him out? Do we know what our fate is without him? See, Jesus came to give life and life to the full. We don't have to shoulder shame. We don't have to compromise. We don't have to see ourselves as our own personal savior. We have this free gift of salvation in Jesus. We don't need to walk around as sinners. We can walk around redeemed, but only, only because of him. Can we stand up in this place? Thank you for watching. Again, if you were impacted by this message in any way, send an email to mystory@slatechurch.com. You can also visit slatechurch.com and fill out one of our online connect cards. We would love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. As well, you can stay connected with us by following us at Slate Church on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.